Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys part two about Dr. Sam Shepard and Marilyn Shepard. Today, I am drinking not coffee, but beer. It is a blood orange wheat from Sixth Sense Brewing Co. in Ohio. It's pretty good. Nice. I am having a day, so I'm drinking a pink grapefruit sparkling seltzer. (laughs) I'm drinking an island something smoothie from Smoothie King. (laughs) And I have a cup of hot hazelnut black coffee. This is so on brand for you to have like 48 drinks. So I'm going to be well hydrated for this episode. Dear Lord. Uh, All right. Well, I hope somebody out there is drinking more drinks than Erica, but probably not. It's possible. But yeah, whatever you're drinking, enjoy it and let's dive on in. continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more crime over coffee content by signing up for our patreon you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content to check out this opportunity and sign up for the crime over coffee patreon visit www.patreon.com slash crime over coffee pod thank you again for all of your support So if you didn't join us for part one, go back and listen to that. But in part one, we learn that Marilyn Shepard was stabbed to death multiple times and murdered. We also learned that her husband, Sam, was home during that time. And so he has given pretty much all of his information to detectives. And at the moment where we left off in part one, the detectives are finding him incredibly suspicious and they're kind of all pointing fingers at him and trying to get him to admit to murdering Marilyn. So we pick up with in the next few days after the murder and investigators are trying to figure out what Dr. Sam Shepard's motive would have been. Why would he have killed his wife? So they start talking to some of the family's neighbors and one of the neighbors says that Marilyn had talked to her and told her that Dr. Shepard had been sterile from having being around x-rays for too long. And so if you remember in part one, I told you that the autopsy showed that Marilyn had become pregnant, that when she died, there was like a four month old baby in her belly. So the neighbor was like, if that's the case and Dr. Shepard really was sterile, then she would have a different father of that child. Right. And so They were like, okay, that could be a really good theory to go off of. Let's investigate that further because maybe he got mad and found out that she was cheating and then killed her. So they begin to do, I honestly, I feel like more tests than they ever had. So they begin to test the fetus. And in doing so, they learn that that's not true. The the baby did actually belong to Sam, to Dr. Shepard. So kind of dispels that theory. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a chance that Sam thought Marilyn was cheating because he there could have been something else to make him feel that way or to make the neighbor think that that was a something to kind of look out for. So police are still looking for a possible motive for Dr. Shepard in murdering his wife. And 
they then kind of turn it directly onto Dr. Shepard. And they're like, he must have done it because he was cheating on his wife because he wanted out of the marriage. I mean, it's not the worst motive. It's obviously one that we see frequently. So not that abnormal. But when they start looking into it, they realize that there is actually some stock to this. So there is a nurse that supposedly Sam had been seeing named Sue Hayes, who worked at Bayview Hospital there. Apparently, he'd been going in and dropping off multiple gifts for her and frequently communicating with her. And it was something that people that worked with her and knew her kind of found suspicious. So on July 10th, Sam Shepard had actually gone in for questioning with police and they were asking him all kinds of questions, trying to figure out if somebody had helped him. Like literally all the questions that they're asking him are under the assumption that he did it. So... They start asking him about Sue Hayes and they're like, did you ever have an affair with a Sue Hayes? And Dr. Shepard's like, well, we were nothing more than good friends. And however, when they spoke with Sue Hayes, she admitted that their relationship had been sexual and that there had been a little bit more than friendship there. Apparently they had met because Dr. Shepard obviously worked in the hospital. Sue Hayes would perform lab work for him and they started out talking that way and then their relationship did turn turn sexual with a lot of the things happening either in the doctor's car or in Sue's apartment, which obviously made Dr. Shepard seem even more suspicious because at this point, people are like, well, was there some sort of argument that came out between Sam and Marilyn that night? And Marilyn was accusing him of the affair and he got angry and killed her. Or was Sam asking for a divorce from Marilyn? She said no. And so he's like, okay, fine. I'll get rid of you one way or another. So I also wonder if maybe they started to look into... I also wonder if they started to look into Sue as well, because she might have a motive, especially if she maybe knew of the pregnancy. That Yeah, I don't know if they ever actually looked into her specifically. I know that they had kind of looked at her as a possible partner for Dr. Shepard, but they were, they were very focused specifically on Dr. Shepard. They were almost 100% positive that he had something to do with it and they just needed to find a way to prove it. So at this point, it's suggested that they hold an inquest for Dr. Shepard where they can really start to unpack kind of what happened. So this was scheduled for July 22nd in the gymnasium of the Bay Village School. And apparently the gym was incredibly packed full of all kinds of people wanting to ask Dr. Shepard questions. This is kind of a weird situation. Yeah. Like, I I feel like in a lot of the cases we've talked about, it's not been something like this where they all meet and ask a bunch of questions. It's. I feel like the inquest kind of thing is more like the 1800s. Like, I feel like it used to happen long ago. And we're in, like, 1950s. And... So I, I do feel, I did think the same thing. It was a little odd. But I, a smallish town, I guess? I'm not sure. So they all get together. And when Dr. Shepard gets there, he's still wearing his neck brace. Because if you remember, he had his neck broken in the attack on his wife. And so he sits down and he's answering questions that... So Sam Gerber, the county coroner, starts to ask Sam Shepard a bunch of questions. And they... The way that they did this inquest, which I, like I said, inquests are kind of like an older thing. They're not really done nowadays. So I don't know the exact 
rules and laws to what an inquest would have like been but dr shepherd's attorney bill corrigan was not even allowed to like be up there with dr shepherd he had to sit in the stands and just watch as an observer which i thought was kind of interesting but once again don't know all the rules one of the questions that was asked of Dr. Shepard was whether or not he ran or walked to catch up to, if you remember, he had said that there was like a bushy uh, white form that he had seen attacking his wife. And so they're like, did you run or did you walk to catch up with the form when you were going down to the beach? He, and he was like, quote, I can't give you a specific recollection. I proceeded as rapidly as I could, end quote. So the observers and the people asking questions kind of felt like he was not giving real answers and he was kind of just like pushing them off and brushing them off. That's such an unfortunate position to be in if you actually truly like let's say he did get attacked like he said and he's lost his memory because of this like head trauma. It's so unfortunate that no matter what you say it's gonna look suspicious at this point. 100%. It also I mean at this point because he's already seemed slightly suspicious to investigators they're so focused on him that I don't really know that there ever would have been a good way for him to get out of that. The next morning, Dr. Shepard is brought back in for questioning. This time, most of the questions are focused on his relationship with Susan Hayes. And his attorney, Bill Corrigan, suggested to him that he denies any sexual relations because he's like, it's irrelevant. It's it's going to most likely be ruled admissible in a criminal trial. So just like deny anything. And so when they're asking these questions, Dr. Shepard's like, absolutely not. I did nothing. And they're like, did you and Suhey's at any point in time sleep in the same bed? And Dr. Shepard is denying everything. Apparently the crowd was like cheering on the coroner, like as he's asking all these questions, which is interesting. It was almost like a quite literally like a game kind of thing like first off they're in a gymnasium and they're they've got one guy there and they're like asking all these questions and everybody's cheering on the one team and like booing the other team like it's it's kind of weird also i mean in theory they may have not slept in the same bed together at any point this is true abby's not he might not have been lying during that (laughs) he may not have lied however there was another question (laughs) that he asked where he was like There was a four-night stay, like, where you guys were at a private home in Southern California a few months before the murder. Like, you didn't sleep in the same bed at all. Uh Oh. I know married couples that don't sleep in the same bed. So, it's possible, I guess? It's really not that unusual. At one point in time, Dr. Shepard's attorney, Bill Corrigan, got so heated and so upset at the way that people were treating Dr. Shepard and the fact that they weren't really listening to anything that he was saying that he started to, like, yell at everybody and so he ended up being escorted from the gym one thing that i do have to say that i find interesting about this inquest is the fact that they're like which i guess the point of the inquest is because he's not officially arrested so he's they're like asking him these questions i guess to determine if they should arrest him i don't really know but all the questions that he's asking are kind of questions that i feel like you'd want to ask on the stand where like people are swearing not to lie you know and to tell the truth yeah i need to like i guess look into these type of inquests to get a better understanding of what's even happening and what's admissible from it and what's the point of it because it's so like i think it's just so far from something i've heard of that it's i'm having a hard time even wrapping my head Mm -hmm. around it either way I guess Dr. Shepard looked suspicious enough or pissed off enough people that on July 30th, 1954, he was arrested for the murder of his wife. 
So before trial, detectives are obviously working to gather as much evidence and information as they can in order to present it against Dr. Shepard, right? And so while doing so, they learned that Dr. Shepard had actually lied to them at some point in time, which isn't looking good for somebody who already appears suspicious. But they learn that not only had Dr. Shepard engaged in numerous affairs, but they also learned that Marilyn knew about the affairs. And she was so frustrated that he was having these affairs and doing all these things that she would purposefully smoke cigarettes around her husband because she knew it pissed him off. I feel like that's fair. That's not even close to evening the playing field. I, I feel like they were just at a point, though, where they were just like trying to egg each other on almost. And they were just getting more and more frustrated with one another. Also, probably a point in time where they probably should have considered a separation if, you know, this is kind of what it's come to. But once again, I think it kind of maybe was a game for them at this point, if that's really what was going on. And to add to that, it was in the 50s and divorce really wasn't as common back then either. It was kind of frowned upon. Correct. So, I mean, that could have definitely been part of it, too. But it is no Known that Dr. Shepard was also drinking excessively and it was a concern and Marilyn had talked about the fact that she was concerned about it. It is speculated that he was probably drinking a lot on the night of the murder and I don't know because as I said in part one they had people over at their house like guests over at their house that night for dinner and stuff. I don't know if they ever asked those people if they'd seen him drink a lot. If you remember, he had gone to bed early because he wasn't feeling well because he was really tired. And so I think maybe that's where detectives decided to pull from and speculate that he may have been drunk that night because he went and laid down because he had drank too much kind of thing. Also could have been why he didn't hear somebody break into their house. But police also theorized that he probably did kill his wife. And if he did, he had been drunk and had gone upstairs, maybe tried to have sexual relations with his wife, and she told him no, and so he acted out and murdered her. When they're finding out all this information, they decide to go to Susan Hayes again, and they're like, okay, listen, like, tell me more about this. Like, is this stuff that happened? And he, she does confirm that per her record and per like what Dr. Shepard had told her, he wanted to divorce her Marilyn, but Marilyn kept in refusing a divorce. And so detectives were like, okay, this has to be the person. So this is all the stuff that they're kind of gathering after that inquest before they officially go to trial. The trial officially starts on October 18th, 1954 in the Cleveland courtroom of Judge Edward Blythen. And so the the next bit of this episode is going to be a lot of trial information. So bear with me. Take notes if you really want to follow along because there is a lot. And we'll Abby and I will do our best to try to go through it all. So Dr. Shepard's trial begins with just not great off the bat, to be honest. So, so the first issue was that the judge denied the defense's motion to move the trial out of Cleveland and to delay the trial until the publicity about the case died down. I was just going to say with the inquest and everything, I bet this was very publicized. Yes. So like, and I didn't talk about it a whole lot, but there were a lot of like different journalists and stuff that like names were name dropped throughout all of this because they were so invested in this and they were like almost hassling Dr. Shepard and like they were at every trial, every inquest, like just trying to get as much information as possible. So it was very much out there. And unfortunately, every single jury that was selected for the trial was familiar with everything that had been released. Some of them had attended the inquest 
and they knew literally everything. All but one, I guess, said that they already knew about the case. So the judge was like, it's fine. This is what we're going to go with. It's going to be cool. But the next issue that occurred is that the, which I is unheard of and ridiculous, a newspaper decided that they got, like once they got a hold of everybody that was a part of the jury, they posted their photos and their names, every single jury member in the newspaper article and like said, all these, these people are doing the jury on the jury for this trial, which probably tells you that 8,000 people reached out to them to be like, well, this is my response. Like, this is what I think happened. Well, there was no like unbiased jury at all in this situation. Everybody had all these preconceived notions. At the trial, the coroner, Sam Gerber, did testify that he didn't believe the murder was sexually motivated. He felt like it was rage motivated, which is different than what police had initially come up with. If you remember, like I told you, there were a lot of horrific wounds to Marilyn's body, including an insane amount of stabs. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. But detectives did say that they had found one fingerprint at the scene of the crime and it was consistent with Dr. Shepard and it was found on the Marilyn's headboard. Once again, I mentioned this in part one, Marilyn and Dr. Shepard had different beds. So that still doesn't seem that bizarre or weird to me though. No, I would agree. I mean, it's the same, like they live there. And let's just say he helped put the bed together. Like <laughs> he helped move it in there. I don't feel like it was a great defense. The other thing that Dr. Gerber, the, the coroner, said is that the, there was an impression on the pillowcase of what they believed was the murder weapon. And it was like in it was in blood. And they said that it reminded them of some sort of surgical instrument. If you remember in part one, I talked about the fact that Dr. Shepard's bag had been like ripped open and like his tools had been kind of thrown about and found outside the house. So whether or not once again, this is kind of hard. Did Dr. Shepard use those tools and then like hide them? Or did somebody break in, grab that tool and use it? And then just just to make sure we're all on the same page, they never found the exact murder weapon, correct? No, they also aren't 100% sure what the exact murder weapon was. They knew that it was some sort of surgical instrument, but it, from what they could find, they never officially pinpointed or released that they pinpointed one singular weapon, just that it was a surgical instrument. Bill Corrigan, which was Dr. Shepard's defense attorney, spent the majority of this trial trying to convince the jury that the injuries that Dr. Shepard had suffered were incredibly serious and that he would not have been able to inflict those on himself, which if you remember, I mean, he had like a broken neck, a concussion, he had all kinds of issues. And it was kind of argued by the prosecution that maybe those injuries came from having a fight with Marilyn. Like if Marilyn had been trying to fight off her attacker, he could have gotten injured in that, which, okay, so it's not self-inflicted. But the, Bill Corgan was like, I'm hoping that the jury will believe this because like Sam's talking about how he had this like fight with this intruder. I think the thing that was kind of not on Sam's side at this time was the fact that the only information he could give to the intruder was a bushy haired form, white form. Like, I feel like any more description would have been at least a little more helpful, but it seems like a very vague description. And I, once again, could be related to the head injury, but I think for the jury, like, it almost could sound like he is lying because he's not giving any details. I would like to raise a point, though, because I feel like if he had some involvement, he would have probably come up with more of a description in my head. Okay. It seems like by 
purpose like let's say he is involved and he's gonna lie him being vague like that to me especially when people are pushing for more makes it seem like he's sticking to the truth i think that could be looked at one way or the other yeah i i mean i think that you're right i think that it depends on how you want to look at the situation but he is sticking to his initial story which is positive but I mean, there's so much to analyze when it comes to whether or not somebody's telling the truth or lying, which is super interesting. I'm not going to get into that whole thing right now, but it is really interesting to kind of like learn about the tells and things and how much information is going to change and how much won't change and all that stuff. I do think I've heard a few times that when people are lying, they're almost too detailed. Yes. They will almost be too detailed and it sounds rehearsed. So it'll sound almost the exact same every time they say it. Mm -hmm. You will expect slight diversion. Like it won't sound 100% the same. You'll expect some details to be slightly different or like explain slightly different if it's the truth that's being told because things are slightly remembered differently anyways. It's a, it's a technique that detectives use when they're interviewing a lot of different eyewitnesses because if they're interviewing four eyewitnesses and their testimonies are 100% the exact same, something's got to give because where you're standing and how you're feeling that day and how you interpret things, like each one of those things is going to change your viewpoint. Obviously, in this one, we only have the testimony of one individual that we're trying to figure out if it's the truth or not, but it is still something to kind of like think about there's a lot of possibilities so bill corrigan decides to bring up dr stephen shepherd who was the doctor that had actually checked out sam shepherd after the incident with the intruder on the night his wife was murdered any relation no their names are actually spelled i think slightly differently dr stephen i'm gonna call him stephen said that when dr sam shepherd arrived he had touched his neck and like when he got there he looked so bad that he thought that he was dead he was like, this guy looks awful. And when he was like touching him, he could feel muscle spasms and like involuntary movements in his neck. Apparently, Sam was like blacking out and was like dragged out of his house and taken to the hospital because he couldn't move. So they ended up bringing up four doctors and three nurses to that had like taken care of him there. And they were all testifying and they're like, no, his injuries were really bad. His feet were all shriveled up like he'd been in water for a long time, which would make sense because he said that the second attack was out by the water and that's where he passed out for a while. And his pants were wet, right? Yes. They also talked about how the x-ray showed a fracture of his second cervical vertebrae. They said that he had swelling at the base of his skull, the neck spasms. They were like literally everything that happened was shown medically and couldn't have been faked. It was all a real injury. And they're like, it would be incredibly impossible for him to have self-inflicted this. Which, in theory, should really help his defense, but I'm nervous about where this is going. You should be. So the defense continues to argue, and they're like, okay, listen, like the crime scene was incredibly bloody, but when we found Dr. Shepard, he had no blood on him other than the stain on the knee of his pants. And the prosecution was like, well, the shirt that he was wearing was gone. And he had also gone down to the lake, as we could see by his pants. So maybe he threw the shirt away and washed his chest off. And that's why there was no blood on him. I don't know that that would have completely washed all the blood off. They were really trying here to just make him look guilty. The other thing that the defense brought up is Marilyn had broken teeth. 
So the coroner said that she had most likely bit her attacker. But when they had checked out Dr. Shepard, he had no bite wounds. A lot of things kind of, I mean, it's kind of a complicated situation because there are things that you can turn to be suspicious against Dr. Shepard. And then there's a lot of things where you're like, okay, this obviously doesn't fit him. So the prosecution brings up a witness named Dr. Lester Adelson, who had ended up being on the stand for almost two days. And he was showing, he was one that had done part of the autopsy and he was showing like all kinds of different pictures of the autopsy to the jurors and like explaining things and Dr. Shepard apparently had asked to leave the courtroom while they were showing the brutal pictures of his wife in the autopsy and they denied it they're like no you can stay in here and watch these photos which I just think in many situations I get that they were probably trying to see what his reaction was but there's like obviously I mean he's probably showing if it was him he's showing guilt in this moment I guess but like if it wasn't him like to subject him to that again he already saw her dead body and if it was him like there are people that obviously as we know like get off on seeing the dead like their victims and stuff so like I just feel like this was not handled in the best way so he was forced to stay in there and watch So they are discussing the autopsy, which I talked about in part one. So if you want to go back and listen to part one, if you haven't already, like I said, go through all the autopsy details there. So they bring in the patrolman, Fred Drunken, which is the one of the first patrolmen to get to the scene and one of the ones to interview Dr. Sam Shepard. And so he's explaining all the circumstantial evidence that they have for this. And they're like, okay, I don't believe that he had this fight on the beach with the guy. There was no signs of a struggle in the house. There was no indication of forced entry. There was no reports of anybody in the neighborhood that anything weird was happening. So I find it highly unlikely that this is actually what occurred. The coroner, Sam Gerber, who was on the prosecution side, also the one that asked the majority of the questions during the inquest, also said, you know, he came up and he talked about it. And he was like, once again, we had that blood stain on the pillow that looked like a surgical instrument not sure which one they also ended up showing a picture of the pillow and the blood stain on it like during the trial to everybody and so the jury was kind of left to like determine what they thought and a lot of them said that it kind of looked like a claw-like object which so i'm not sure exactly what kind of surgical instrument they're saying was used i don't i don't know much about surgery but maybe there is a surgical instrument that kind of looks like a claw so They also then next bring up another detective after the coroner, and he's like, look, Dr. Sam Shepard's story has been slightly inconsistent. He initially said that he was first hit going up the stairs. Then he said that his first hit was when he was in the hallway. Then he said that his first hit was actually when he was in the bedroom. And so they're like, there's all these different accounts, like something's not adding up. He's probably lying. Finally, after all this evidence has been presented, they do bring Sam up to the stand And they start asking him about his relationship with Marilyn. And he's like, look, we had a really good, we had a happy relationship, which is one thing to say. However, there's all of this speculation about whether or not he was unfaithful, right? And so Sam, in his speaking, like in his testimony, he does say, you know, like, we did disagree about things. Like, we were husband and wife. Of course, we're going to disagree. Like, there was a time that she bought an electric dishwasher with money that was supposed to go towards an insurance payment. And... There, so there was like different arguments that they had about related to money and things like that. But he said that he felt like Marilyn was always in his corner. And so and he loved her. So is he denying the cheating allegations still? Yeah. 
So he is, he's like, I didn't cheat. And and the, really, that was the main thing the prosecution was focused on at this point. So at this point, they're really focused on that motive aspect. And they're like, you had to be unfaithful. There was a time that we saw that people saw you kiss a patient in the in the or in the parking lot somewhere, and they're just like trying over and over and over to get him to admit to being unfaithful and to murdering his wife, and he just continuously denies it. So on November third, nineteen fifty four, the twelve individuals, the seven men, five women on the jury, were taken to the shepherd's house and led on a tour of their home, including the bedroom where the murder took place, the den with the desk where everything had been pulled out, the stairs leading to the beach, the beach themselves, all of this stuff. And Dr. Shepard was cuffed, but he was following them around throughout the whole thing. Somebody did say that when they got to his son's room, he did end up bursting into tears when he saw his son's room. Take that as you will. So, which I don't know that I've ever really heard about them doing things like that, where they take the entire jury to the scene of the crime. I actually have, and I've heard of it in some of the older cases. And I also, I was trying to, as you were saying this, I was thinking about, I can't remember exactly which cases, maybe someone listening knows and they can remind me. There is a case where somebody either was shoved or fell off a cliff and it was believed that the person the two people they were with were responsible and so they actually had the trial up on the cliff like they brought the jury and the lawyers and the judge up there and that's where it was held which is bonkers we covered that case i think right like you covered it maybe i maybe i get mixed up on which ones i've covered on here and which ones i've just watched either way it is it is weird and wild and stuff that we don't really hear about But once again, you said that's something that we see in older cases. I don't feel like 1954 was that old, but we're seeing a lot of stuff that we would see 100 years ago, like over 100 years ago in this case, which I thought was interesting. It feels very, to me, like it it feels like there's some entities trying to sway the jury, maybe in some not ethical ways. That's my thought. 100%. I'm glad you said that because I'm going to tell you what the prosecutor told the jurors. So prosecutor John Mahan on the next day of the trial ends up telling the jurors, quote, a reasonable interpretation of the state's evidence will point the finger of guilt at Sam Shepard, end quote, which to me just seems like he's directly telling the jurors what to vote for or like you're dumb if you don't vote for this, mm-hmm. which is yeah. wild to me. He also said that the evidence would show that the defendant in Maryland had been having a fight and because Dr. Sam Shepard had been having affairs with other women and that was the reason that she was killed. So he just like came up and strictly was just like opening statement. This is what happened. Bye. Mm -hmm. You know, and what's unfortunate, too, with these kind of cases is when there's items that you can look at that are people testifying as professionals saying, no, this is not possible. But all the circumstantial evidence is like pulling on heartstrings, I think, a little bit more. And while there's a place for circumstantial evidence, there's obviously a reason that cases don't always go to trial if they only have circumstantial. And so it's unfortunate that we're hearing the medical examiners or the doctors, I guess, say this is not possible. But because the prosecution has this other narrative and they're kind of using these different tactics, it's getting lost in the translation. Yes. On December 1st, 24-year-old Susan Hayes is brought in 
to testify. So they start to ask her questions about her relationship with Dr. Sam Shepard. And one of the questions that they ask is, quote, in all this period you have told us about, in which your activities with Sam were going on, you were aware, were you not, that he was a married man? And Susan Hayes responds, yes. And so the prosecutor's like, your honor, the state rests. And that was it. And so pretty vague question. I, yeah, I thought so, too. But they were like, you know, obviously didn't want to ask too many questions. Right. Because then it could look a little different. So this is pretty much all the evidence that's presented here. You guys let me know what you would vote because I'm curious. Abby, we're about to send the jury to do its deliberations. What what are, what way are you going at the moment? Are you going guilty? Like, what would you choose? Not What do you think the, the jury is going to choose? Guilty, not guilty? Um, I would say there's definitely reasonable doubt. And I think just from the doctor's testimonies about how he could not have self-inflicted those injuries and the fact that... Part of the prosecutor's testimony is him not remembering stuff and being kind of unsure. I think if you believe that the medical professionals are saying he had these severe injuries, that is a good indicator of trauma. And it would, you know, kind of explain away those mishaps or those memories that are missing. It sounds to me like I wouldn't say necessarily that he's innocent. I don't know, but I think there's definitely reasonable doubt. Correct. And so the jury is sent off to deliberate on Friday, December 17th. On Tuesday, December 21st, so four days later, they come back and they say that Dr. Shepard is found not guilty of first degree murder, but guilty of second degree murder. And is sentenced to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 10 years. I was like, what? No way. And then you're like, oh, wait. I feel like you led me astray there in the beginning of that statement. I did. But I also know we have a whole other part for this story. So I kind of had a feeling it'd be going this way. There is going to be a whole part three. So let me just tell you. So he goes to prison. And unfortunately, while he's there, literally, I think like I said, within a month or so, his mom ends up committing suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Then his 11 days after his mom dies, his dad dies from cancer. And then while he's in prison, Marilyn's father also dies of suicide. Like all the stuff that happened here kind of just really wrecked their families. And so Dr. Shepard's in prison. I'm not sure where their son is during this time. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of trauma going on in this entire family. So... As Abby already said, there is going to be a part three to this. I will preface it with the fact that the legal team, Sam's legal team, does file several appeals in the 1950s and the 1960s. They're all denied. However, they're all very determined to find out if Sam Shepard really is innocent of murdering his wife. Join us back for part three and you will hear more about that. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.